Welcome to the Brown and Black Podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. Today, we are interviewing someone who was a joy to interview. His name is Eric Galindo, and uh, he has a brand new podcast out called Mike Chilino. And what's interesting about it, it's, it's the number one podcast in Mexico right now. And it's about this, well, we'll get into it, but it's about a, a I guess you, what you'd call an iconic, almost folk hero in Mexican culture. It's that, Tupac, man. It's it's, 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 it's Tupac, <laughs> it's exactly. Tupac, it's a Mexican dude. Tupac. That's exactly what it is. Uh, it's a fascinating story. I highly recommend listening to it because it's just very, very interesting because it says so much about the times. It says so much about the culture. And it also says a lot that we never heard about him. And just Eric Galindo himself is a fascinating dude, super talented for his age. He's in his uh, mid-20s, young guy, and he just seems to have tapped into a frequency of the Hispanic American culture, specifically the Mexican and the North American culture. And he's not the type of Mexican you think you know, right? Uh, he really breaks a lot of stereotypes that Hollywood has created, that American media has created, and I think that's one of the things that makes him a very interesting creator for our generation right now. Yes, and I love the fact that he calls himself a hood nerd. <laughs> yeah, and we'll break down uh, more about Eric in just a few but Mike, you had a very busy weekend. Tell us about it. Well, I did have a busy weekend. So I was out in LA, which I haven't really been on a plane in quite some time, for the CCA Awards, which is the Critics' Choice Awards. And, you know, you and I are both members of the Critics' Choice Association. This is probably just below the Golden Globes and maybe two below the Oscars is the Critics' Choice Awards. Everybody comes, there's not a, an A-list star that wouldn't come, and I was there, and it was pretty great. And I got a chance to meet and party with everybody from Serena Williams to Will Jane Smith. Campion. Jane Campion. Well, now, see? Catherine now you, had, you had to bring up Jane, <laughs> didn't you? Well, there's been a lot of controversy, and before you know, you continue uh, with 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 what happened, because I know you were there for a controversy that happened with Jane Campion, where I guess she must have had you know a couple of uh, a couple of martinis before she went on stage. This New Zealand director who is the favorite to win Best Director at the Oscars for her film The Power of the Dog, she'd be one, I, I think like the first female in I don't know how many years. Uh, to achieve uh, a, a best director, you know, win at the Oscars, but she, and she was the first female to do it the first time around. Exactly. So she now enters the stage and says something that pissed off Venus, Serena, and Black Twitter. The nominees and and you know Serena and Venus, you are such marvels. However, you do not play against the guys <laughs> like I have to. <laughs> 
Now, the thing about that, when you listen to her and you listen to her, it's a joke for her. And, and it's a classic example, in my opinion, of the kind of a joke that someone who has a blind spot will make, a social blind spot. It's a kind of joke that a man might make about a woman, a white person might make about a black. And now this is both a woman and a black woman who she ends up insulting. She ends up insulting probably one of the most iconic figures in the I world. Know. Okay. Uh, what was it like for not... you when you were sitting down and well, she said that? Was there a collective gasp or was this like a post day or two re- realization let, of what let, had just happened? Let me deconstruct that for you a little bit. First <laughs> of all, uh, Jane Campion was super friendly. I have a half a dozen pictures of me with Jane Campion. She was very friendly. She's leaning on me. We're laughing. A little touchy-feely, we're talking, Jane. A little touchy-feely. And she, she, my daughter, she's my daughter's like, wow, Jane was so friendly, but what's up with the back rub? You know? <laughs> so she was so Yo, friendly. Did she give you a back rub? She gave my daughter back rub. She gave my daughter, as Get they're talking, she's giving her a back rub. Here. So, yeah. And, and I have many times in my life, and I know you have too, when you enter a primarily white space, okay? And you and I have walked in and worked in white spaces for, for a long time. You know, we've worked in, you know, spaces of color and we've worked in the reverse, you know? So I won't get into the code switching, but very often, and what's interesting here for listeners of our show is, hmm, which of the eight white identities does Jane Campion fit into? (laughs) Uh, But as we encounter white people in these white spaces, they do fit into one of these identities. And there are, in my, I didn't, I wasn't as eloquent as, as our guest in breaking it down, but I always, you could always spot the white person that just wants to be down. Okay. And they're, they're happy that you know them. They're happy that you know their work. They're happy that you're a fan of theirs and you're black. You know, I've had this happen, and I just got that vibe for her. She was like, you know, she's Jane Campion. She's been breaking barriers as a woman. I, I think any woman with any intelligence is going to understand, any white woman is, should understand what it is to be a person of color because you've been treated the same way by the same, let's just say, figure, which is white male. Now, she was very friendly. She was there. She was talking with me, my daughter. She was talking with Serena. She was, she was you know, I, I wasn't at the black table, but there are a lot of black folks around who know Jane Campion as there are more black folks now in the CCA than ever before. Mm-hmm. She was having a good time. <laughs> so when she gets up on stage, she was still having a good time. And then she said what she said. And now the cameras captured Serena's face. And that face is a face that all black people know. And, and I think Latinos know it as well, where, okay, I know this person did not mean to be insulting, but they totally were. And you have a choice of either smiling, that uncomfortable smile that Serena gave, and going in your mind, <sighs> or, you know, you could frown or you could react to it i think serena and her family and the williams family and you know everybody was there will smith was there jade was there. everybody was there uh, lots of important black folks are there roll right up in the front as well and they all got it jane ended up apologizing and and as you saw martin scorsese later this week just came on and just gave her huge praise a day before we did this recording so 
I have to say, it's interesting to me, and I really want your take on this, Jack, or really, when you encounter these people, I don't want to call them white liberals necessarily or leftists or anything, but let's just say white folks who really want to be down, but they don't realize they're not quite as down as they think, and they still have a lot to learn. I think that's that's it, Mike. Um, what ends up happening in situations like this is, uh, you summed it up the best, blind spots. It's intention versus ignorance. I think it's really boils down to the two. What happens? That's the intersection. That's the intersection. What happens when you feel you know enough? You're brave enough to now speak without feeling like you're offending anybody. And then you offend somebody. And like Socrates once said, all I know is that I know nothing. And I think it's in those moments where you can calculate intention or not. Is she being cruel deliberately to hurt us? Are you going out of your way to make us feel bad like maybe a lot of Trumpians feel? But I think in that situation, it seems like Campion was already giving a lot of love to everyone and misspoke what was supposed to be a gender issue became a racial issue. Well, yes. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I think that people were able to interpret from that that she wasn't going out of her way to deliberately be cruel. And I think people will give her the pass. I think she's maybe earned it. Um, and as a woman who is on her way to make history at the Oscars again, do you derail that? You know, and that's more of a question for you. Like you as an African-American man who heard that and who knows that she has a lot to learn still at her age, man, still having to learn. Do you derail that? Well, you understand, it's very, it's an interesting question you ask, and, and it maybe brings up a, actually a larger issue that I hadn't considered, which is, okay, how much and how often and under what criteria do you give somebody a pass for, for their ignorance, for their thing? Like, you know, a lot of people said her apology fell flat. A lot of people, it was been, if you just put in Jane Campion, uh, Serena Williams, you'll see tons and tons of articles that are people opinioning on what she said and why she said it, how it happened, what it represents, what it says about white feminism. Because let's face it, she's a white feminist. She's a woman in an industry that was, at the time she won, is what, maybe 2% of women were directors. And then it, it jumped from 4.5 in 2018 to like 10.2 in 2019. It's still a tiny percentage of you know, the amount of women who have the position to actually direct a film. Now, for her to say what she said doesn't acknowledge that there are uh, all the other fields, specifically tennis, which are dominated by by men and, and what it is to be, even if you're not playing against a man, it's still the media is male. The 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 outlets are male. The, the, the money that's coming to you is still coming from, you know, to not acknowledge that and then to even dismiss not only her womanhood and what she's come up against in terms of male, but her her blackness and not acknowledge that's like that's so 
it's such a privileged view of the world that look I have it so hard you know it's like Kim Kardashian saying get your fucking ass up and work it's like are you kidding seriously <laughs> are, is that really are you seriously you know and then what I also reminded me of too is what you started to say about that that comfortability I thought of Joe Rogan mm. and all the times he said the N-word. You see those clips? He's just casually saying it. He's like, yeah, you know, they call you an N-word. Hey, man, yeah, but wait a minute. You I, you know, I said it within context. So, you know, if, if, if Snoop Dogg says it and I'm just repeating Snoop Dogg, then, yeah, I can say it anytime I want to, Mike. Well, now, you see, and what that brings up for me is the basic. This is a question that white people literally still ask. Why is it okay for black people to call themselves... Uh, you know, the N-word, and white people can't say it. Why is that? The fact that this they is, still This is EQ, that, man. This, this question this is social still asked. Yes, social EQ, I, I agree. I thought you were going to say social IQ, but yes, they still, they still don't get it. And I think that the question is, like you said, like, do you just let it go? Like, do you let Joe Rogan slide? Do you let Robert Downey Jr. do blackface and let it slide? Well, <laughs> yeah, you, you give Robert Downey Jr. because the context. The context, he was uh, making a joke about the Well, industry. Ben Stiller was creating a character that did blackface. So at what point does any of them get some slack? Yes, he was. We're all slided that one under the rug, brother, because we like well, them. Again. Because of charm, because we I, come on, I let Clint Eastwood, Clint Eastwood got slack. Yeah, well, well, he's he's taking a beat. What about Mel Gibson? But Ben. He did, but then he's back. Okay, well, that's fine. You know, it's 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 redemption, and we love a redemptive story. Look, we don't hate these guys. We love them first, and we find out that they're not perfect, and we want to melt them into magma, and then once again, we want to have the control to allow them to come back and be loved again. But remember, we're in control. We can take you down, Mel. So I think we like to play this game in America with our public heroes. You know, they can't always be great and beloved forever. True, but you know what? There is, and this is the other part, the last part of this conversation for me. There is an extreme double standard. We, as people, brown and black people, are always having to give, uh, forgive and give white people a pass, okay? Uh, I don't know how many times... Uh, and I forget her name. Megan McCain. How many times did she say some inflammatory shit? Never get docked. Uh, or suspended. Or suspended. <laughs> Meanwhile, Whoopi says one thing that, that's incorrect. It's perception is zero. I mean, come on, let's face it. She was she used to date Ted Danson. Whoopi's not exactly uh, uh, against white people. Okay. Okay. <laughs> right. But she's going to call things out as she sees it. And it's always, she's, she's an constantly evolving person in my opinion yet she was docked for two weeks yeah and Why? we know what's going on with that because the people in the back guess what skin color they are they're passing laws to make white kids not feel uncomfortable yet we as brown and black people always have to forgive white people for making us feel uncomfortable that's called systemic racism institutionalized racism to make sure that the law says that you can't uh teach uh gender and sexuality from kindergarten to third grade in florida you know it's things of this nature mike 
that that pisses us off because why are hey can you allow us Latinos give us Latinos and the and, and blacks the power to create laws for white people what would the world look like if we were the ones making the laws huh <laughs> you know what we should do a show about that yeah I'm I'm with it I'm with Mike it. that's the show to do that's 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 the next show. HBO, if you're listening. <laughs> because here's what we are unable to do. We, all right, we're not creating the laws. You know, They couldn't even, after uh, what happened uh, with all the, the, the protests around the world uh, of how they killed George Floyd, they still couldn't pass the laws that they wanted to pass. But they were able to pass. Right, but if you're Asian and you're being hated against, that those laws... That don't are even, made up don't in get weeks. Going. Don't even get me going. But now, <laughs> so it's not. It's not. You know that right. they don't want. They can't do it. Is that right? Now, they want to do it for us, right? But now, what about the social laws? The social laws, the unwritten laws, the laws that are part of society that we either create and embrace or we don't. We can't create those social laws. We can't say okay, that the people don't want to acknowledge. You say all right. You're a white person. You do not say the N word. They do not want. Well, to. you can't curb those. So that's just going to have to be, you know, the uh, the will of that person. You either can be in the same space with them or remove yourself from that space because it makes you feel uncomfortable. But that's the world, and I think that give and take is what makes us us. And this experiment, you know, I don't know how long it's going to go before we DMZ it, like HBO's new show on Civil War. And it's going to be really interesting, man. By the way, speaking of the CCAs, March 27th, the Academy Awards are coming back after their dismal ratings failure, a flop like it's never happened before in the history of the Academy, where they barely got into the 10 million mark, the double digit mark, for the first time in a long time. Supposedly there's a billion viewers watching around the world, that might not be the case with the Academy Awards. But a lot of controversy might coming in. Spielberg, Lucas, an uh, uproar because the Oscars have decided to drop eight awards from the television live broadcast to do them off air. And the reason they're doing that is to speed up the show, to make it a little bit more entertaining and less of a slog. Everyone's always complained, Mike. Damn it, man, it's four hours. I, I can't deal with it. I need to go to sleep tomorrow. And uh, what am I watching? I'm not being fully entertained, you know? Shave it down to three. Ah, three's too long, Mike. They, I don't know what people want, man. I really don't. I enjoy those three hours. It's once a damn year. And it's supposed to be the pinnacle of the film industry. Let's see. It, it, it's the one that you're supposed to tolerate intentionally. Have a stamina for this one particular night if you love film if you don't don't watch brother i think people have not been watching and i think that's a problem and i think that the oscars have lost 
an enormous amount of relevancy over the years. Enormous. I, and I think that's why nobody watches because, you know, let, let me ask you, what were the top three reasons you watch the Oscars every year? I watch the Oscars, yes, professionally, I have to watch the Oscars because I invest so much time within the year to movies that I'm curious what the majority of the greatest committee in the history of film, right? The Academy Committee, what they think is the best movie. And I want to know if I'm right or I wonder if I'm wrong. On a personal level, I want to know what all the great cinema that's been created in the last year that I might have missed because I'm a cultured person. Because I love culture, period. I love arts and culture. It's my identity. It's what I wake up to do. What's going on um, in the art world, film, music, television, popular culture in specific. That's what I love. And the intersection with race that we do here on the Brown and Black Show. So for me, what movie are people talking about that they consider prestige cinema, that they consider to be the best visual effects or the best writing of the year? What is something that can stimulate me, titillate me in a way that a story can? And so the insights of what the best filmmakers getting together to vote for the best films of this particular year, I find it really informative. And so I want to know more about it. And I'm also enthralled into the romance of cinema and how that shapes the way I view the world, how these stories that we see from different worlds and different languages, how these stories also connect us in a way that we need to be connected right now. And that, to me, is why I watch the Oscars, man. I think that you are unique in that you have a reason as somebody in the industry to watch this. The average person, I think that they watch it because of A, they get to see a bunch of celebrities that they don't, you know, that they only get to see in movies. So you're seeing them in and real And people life. are fascinated with celebrities. People are fascinated with celebrities. I think B, because, you know, you want to see, of course, what everybody says is the best. Okay, it's the best of the best. It's a contest. People so like you. So you don't feel stupid in the black party or in the water cooler area or just catching yeah, up with right. friends. Yeah, well, if, and you love movies, so you want to know what, you know, what's great, what's good. So, you know, it's sort of like the ultimate uh, critical review. Like you said, the, the, the greatest, you know, opinions of the industry are going to decide on the Oscars because to most people, they don't know who the committee is. They just know that Motion Picture Academy means nothing. But I think the glitz, the glamour, all of that, I think it's a little passe. I think looking at celebrities, you can watch them on Instagram all day, every day if you wanted to, and, and watch them up and down, watch them eat with makeup, uh, makeup, any place they go, behind the scenes. So there's no thrill for that. I also think because this industry has cannibalized itself with everything, it's like Spider-Man's going to be on, on Blu-ray in, in, a, in a minute. You know, everything that, that Batman, I, sh I shouldn't say, Batman, Spider-Man's been out. Batman's about to come out. They've already announced Batman. Batman's been in the theater for like, what, a month? Okay, so the windows are getting closer and closer. You've got date and date streaming, so you're not going to miss anything. And if you are, there's so much to choose from anyway. Something that won an Oscar also doesn't really matter because the stuff that is Oscar skews much, much different than, than what the average person wants to see. Okay, Oscar films traditionally may win an Oscar, but don't make that much money. 
Okay. Now it's it's rare that you have a Titanic, the most popular film, wins the Oscar. Okay. I think the last factor coming in is that there are a so many award shows, so much to choose from. This I think all those factors roll into a younger audience that really doesn't care. It doesn't Oscars. What does that even mean? Who cares? Who cares? That's some old school shit that doesn't mean a goddamn thing to me because I'd much rather watch Euphoria anyway. It's not the length. I think it's the concept of the Oscars. I think the smartest thing they're doing is having this everybody gets to vote, okay, for one category. Uh, But to me, the fact that they're going to have the best original score off camera Fuck you. I, I didn't watch the Oscars anyway. So, go ahead. Well, the eight awards that will not be televised this year are documentary short, film editing, makeup and hairstyling, original score, production design, animated short, live action short and sound. These are the eight categories, and let's just be honest. Let's just be frank and blunt with it. These are the ones that they feel don't stack up. These are the ones that they don't care about. Right? Best original score? Come on. These are now. the ones that they feel Say are that disposable. To John I want to hear what John Williams says about Right, but that. but okay, fine. But you know what? It's not really known for music. It's no more known more for composition as opposed to John Legend belting out a pop song. And John Legend knows yes. it. This in particular has really upset the Steven Spielbergs of the world, who had said, look. I feel very strongly that this is perhaps the most collaborative medium in the world. All of us make movies together. We become a family where one craft is just as indispensable as the next. So who is this coming from? Who is pissed off that this is happening? Dude, the people who are actually on set that understand that it takes a village to make a movie and to actually have that movie be released on a big screen is a miracle. And they know that they did not do that by themselves. And so the Oscars are really not meant for the average person to watch. It's really supposed to be in a closed award show to celebrate the people who make movies. Not who watch them, but who make them. And that right there is why the Oscars exist. It's a narcissistic event to celebrate themselves. It's all about privilege and it's all about power and it's about love of cinema. And we've somehow tried to commercialize it in a different way. That's why it's not working out because it's not really meant for us. It's for those that want to be a part of that club. I 100,000% agree with you. And and for me, I just got to say, a film... What is a film other than sound and images, okay? So for editing, sound, an original score, I'm not even getting into makeup and, and, and production design, but for editing, film editing, sound, an original score to not be televised, you don't have a film without sound and music and editing. You don't have it. But they're looking at Joe in Alabama, and Joe in Alabama doesn't give two hoots about production design or the film editing. And Joe in Alabama's not going to watch anyway. Who's the film editor on this? Oh, you know, it's Casey McGuire. Who? Damn it, man. 
Did I miss that? I think that's what they're pissed about. I, I, it is what they're pissed about. And in my opinion, it's a mistake to do that because I think of you hit it on the nail. This is for people who love movies, who love the behind the scenes, who, who make movies. That's who this is really for. That's who it started out for. And this is who it's really for. That's who's voting. It's people in the industry. They're only opening it up to the public. You got to rethink the Oscars for it to, for, for for this to be open. And they do the same thing that I've seen films do. And you know what I'm talking about when I say this. You have a film that's really a thoughtful, uh, you know, interesting thriller, let's say. Mild thriller. Not a lot of action. Really good character piece. But those couple scenes of action is what they put in the trailer, okay? So that people who th people think it's an action movie because there's a larger audience for the thoughtful thriller than there is for the action movie. But then guess what happens? The people who went to see it thinking it's an action film, they hate it because it's not. It's a thinking. And the people who would have gone because they enjoyed the thoughtful thrillers, they didn't see it because they thought it was an action film because they were going for that larger audience as opposed to the real audience that they should be catering to. It's, it's really meant to be for a clique of people. Not for everyone, and that's where we all screwed up. time has come to talk with Eric Galindo. For those of you that might not know him, <laughs> he is a five-time Telly Award-winning writer, director, and producer known for the upcoming CBS sitcom, Mexican Beverly Hills. He regularly writes about culture for LAist, KPCC, and the New York Times, and was the first managing editor, Mike, of LA Taco, where his work, believe it or not, won a James Beard Foundation Award. This dude is super talented. He also hosts and is the head writer for the hit immersive storytelling podcast, Wild for LAist Studios. Yes, and I have to say, interviewing Eric was a pleasure, and besides him being such a fertile creative mind you really like this kid i mean i want to <laughs> yes and i think what what's interesting is that at such a young age he's been able to accomplish so so much and us who are probably double his age have seen like this meteoric rise happening before our very eyes where all of a sudden the dude has a CBS primetime show on broadcast legacy traditional television that they gave a Mexican kid. And what makes this Mexican kid so unique, so talented? What is it about his voice, his way of thinking that have connected with people? Well, he answers that question when we ask him. Uh, and we talk a lot more about the podcast industry, of what it means to be Mexican American and what this podcast series, Chilino, what that says about America right now. Yes. And I will say this. What's interesting to me also, as you mentioned, him being so young and having done so much and, you know, and the ballad of Chilino Sanchez is, is a great podcast. But, you know, this is a kid who literally created uh, his own destiny. He is where he is because he put in the work. And in this interview, you're about to hear how he did it. 
Our guest today is journalist Eric Galindo, who, uh, along with Sonoro and Futuro Studios, have created a podcast called Idolo, the Ballad of Chalino Sanchez, which is an eight-episode podcast that examines seven theories on why and who killed the king of narco corridos, Chalino Sanchez. And we got Eric with us today. Eric, uh, thanks for being on the Brown and Black podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Eric, I have to, I want to ask you the first question because uh, this is a question I love to ask um, storytellers and, and you're, you're, you're a storyteller, you know, you make film, uh, you do audio drama and, and I started out in radio doing radio drama. So I, I love what you're doing. My question to you is what makes a good story and a story worth telling? That's, that's very subjective. I think uh, I like stories personally with interesting characters. And like, I, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for the hero's journey. Someone who is facing some, a moment in their life that is life-changing and whether they choose to do it or not and why they choose to do it or not. And if they do do it, what happens? Like, at least for me what it feels like to be alive. Like, I feel like we're all faced with these moments where we there, we get on the precipice of something, right? Whether it's like a new job or a new relationship or a, I don't know, you just, you grow up in a neighborhood and you're about to get out of the neighborhood. Like there's just, it's very personal for me, the story that the idea that we can transform our environment and ourselves and be, come better. So I really like those kinds of stories. Um, but I do think you also need complex characters. And I think the setting is something I really fuck with a lot. Like, I really want to know where these people come from, what their environment is like, and what are they trying to overcome. So th those are kind of some of the things I look for. In terms of like, yeah, what's worth telling? I mean, I, I definitely feel like stories everyone's stories worth telling. I like to focus on stories that don't often get told, just kind of stories from marginalized communities. Eric, how did you first discover Chalino Sanchez? I will say my brother, my older brother, was a big fan of Chalino, and he introduced me to Chalino. And I was very young, but I do remember Chalino basically being like the first famous Mexican that I knew, you know, as a kid, like someone from our neighborhood who was actually well-known. And he was also like well known in a in a way that a lot of other well known people in my mind were no well known like politicians actors they all seem like kind of washed like boring to me but Chalino was like the first person who seemed like he was like one of us he was someone I could have I grew up with someone I knew like he could have been one of my uncles one of my cousins and I think that. At an early age, that's how I saw him. It was just like someone from the neighborhood who was doing big things, at least from what I heard. You know, there was always chatter. Like, I remember there was chatter of like this quinceañera he was going to perform at in Compton. And like people were going to go and crash the party. And like, you know, for... I think it took me a while to really understand what drew me to Chalino and at various stages of my life it has changed. But I think the reason I was so compelled to tell his story was because he, he did three things for me. He bridged my 
life in LA in the hood to my parents' life, who was, which was a life of like living on the rancho. He bridged Mexican and LA culture. And he did that because he's saying about like what it was like to grow up in, you know, or he sang songs for criminals, you know, and, and a lot of the people that I knew were kind of out, outside of the law. And he made being Mexican seem cool, you know, which was kind of remarkable. Um, and the other thing he did was he started his own thing. And for me, as someone who never felt like I quite fit in, you know, I was a redheaded Mexican growing up in a neighborhood that was not kind to Mexicans, was not kind to anyone really, but especially if you look like a white boy, like, the, but you are not a white boy, like the white boys didn't like me, you know, the Mexicans didn't like me, I never really quite fit in. So I just felt like Chalino was someone who also didn't fit in with, with like the stereotype of what a singer is supposed to be. And he kind of made his own thing. And thirdly, it was like, here's a guy who was telling stories from his community. Um, and yeah, there were gangster stories, there were nautical stories, but there were, the, there were stories that were complex and that they showed Latinos who were not victims necessarily, who were like trying to do things, who were trying to do big things. And so I think those three things really connected with me. I don't think I realized that until I was like old enough to understand these complex issues. I just knew I loved Telino because he was fucking dope. Like straight up. I don't know what else. Like, you know? <laughs> like why did why why do you love anybody? If you, yeah, you know? it's like like I, I know I knew like if I ran into someone at a party and they knew Chalino, there was like a quick like second hand, like we knew what's up, like we could talk. That's all I knew growing up. And it wasn't until I got much older and really understood, you know, complex issues and stuff that I really could really dive into like, what is it about Chalino that, that I found so seductive? And I still think he's dope as fuck. I just think, you know, these other things are also at play. Just for our listeners who don't really know, but cause I would love to hear the definition from you and potentially what it means to the culture. Narcos Corridos, it's been compared to rap. And when you hear it, like you understand why, you know, it's singing about, let's just say things that you don't hear in other music. Uh, what is Narcos Corridos? And, and tell me a little bit about the culture and maybe how you came into it and what it means to you, that music. Yeah, so a, a corrido is just a ballad. It's like a folk song, you know, like uh, Bob Dylan did it really well. You know, he, you know, like, um, for example, The Hurricane, right? If you ever listen to The Hurricane song by Bob Dylan, that is like a classic ballad. It's got a story in it. It's a song that's a story. Narco Corridos is a specific subgenre where it tells these stories, but instead of focusing on like these uh, obvi- like these very heroic figures or, or, or giant figures, it's kind of focusing on people from the neighborhood. Some of them are, mo- most of the time they are like involved in the narco world, or maybe they weren't, but they got into a shootout with the narco, um, stories like that. So it's basically, you know, in... And it gets compared a lot to rap, but I think it's, it gets really specifically compared to gangster rap because I feel like gangster rap, when gangster rap came onto the scene, it was telling, it was, it, it did feel like, like they were telling like the real story of the streets, you know, they were like reporters 
Um, and I think that that is kind of how I felt about Narco Corridos. It was like, these were telling real stories. These are real people in these stories that are like getting into shootouts or trying to push weight or trying to make a living outside of the law. And a lot of what I saw growing up, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood that was changing. It was mostly black and Latino um, residents who were at war with each other. In, in the early 90s, Southeast Los Angeles was a war center because the Bloods and the Crips and the Essays were all battling over this territory. And what a lot of people may not realize is that like the, the Bloods and the Crips and the Essays, they still exist, but what they realized was they could make a lot more money if they stopped fighting you know, and they can, they can actually control crime. But when I was a kid, I remember fighting over shit I didn't understand. Fighting over race, fighting over territory, fighting over what you were wearing, fighting over your colors. Like for me, it was, it was an existence that had a lot of violence. So when I see somebody singing a song that gives dignity to a life of violence, I feel very, I felt very seen. And I think that that is kind of where the parallels exist, right? Like when NWA burst onto the scene or Tupac or Biggie or, you know, Snoop or Dre, like any of these guys, they're like singing about things that you re relate to, you know? And I think that that is kind of what where the parallels lie. It, it's not nearly the same musically. <laughs> like they both got drums and that's part, pretty much it, but like it's a very different musical style, but I think the the comparison is more in the subject matter. How much time did you spend reporting and producing this podcast? Because I know that any type of series, especially one that's in English and Spanish, and that you're at the creative helm, it's not brief. You know, it's a lot of work. But it's it, so it's like interesting because like in a, in a way I've been sort of reporting it my whole life. Um, I. I started sort of seriously considering it as a story about 10 years ago. And I wasn't sure what it, how I would tell the story, if it was going to be scripted, if it was going to be reported, if it was going to be like a, a news article. Well, one of the things I was checking out is like why no one had told the story. I think that was like the first step. Like I was like, I can't believe no one has touched this in a big way. And at the time, there was a lot of reasons, you know, people gave me those reasons, those reasons had names. And then, like, like in 2019, I had this idea of making another podcast. And I just happened to uh, my business partner, Patty Rodriguez, we were on Team Yellow together, she was like, Marlon Bishop and Maria Hinojosa are starting a production company, you should talk to them. And we had a conversation and that and that is basically when we agreed to do the show eventually we brought on a full team it took a minute you know because of me just doing this on my own and trying to understand how we would tell the story the interesting part about the reporting process is the reporting process can sometimes inform the way you decide to tell the story and i think that that's kind of where we landed on with chelino and why we landed on the the theories because it was just so hard to pin down fact versus fiction with Chalino and he existed in a time before people documented their whole lives right and he was never famous enough to be 
documented in the way like Biggie and Pac were, where like every turn they made was chronicled, right? So it was kind of like, oh, who is this person really? And what is this, what is the best way to tell that story? And once we settled on that, you know, we brought in Alex Mendoza to report on the Mexico side and we got a fixer and we went down to Sinaloa. And we also like, like, to be frank, like we made some inquiries and we're like, Hey, is this a dangerous topic to touch? You know, cause we're not going to send a reporter out there, you know, to the nautical capital of the world to start kicking beehive nests, you know, yeah, and become a very different podcast. yeah it's not yeah and so we we you know like we got assurances from people who are in that world that the nautical elements who would have been upset about it before who had stopped the story from coming out perhaps were no longer around or interested and that it was fine basically and so we went we sent our reporter down to to mexico and and he started talking to people down there and we started kind of disproving these theories essentially or or trying to find which of these theories had the most like holds the most water um to quote marissa tomei but like that is kind of where we were and yeah man it was hard i'm not gonna lie it took us took us a long time and it was we were literally finding things out minutes before publication. You know, we had to make changes and because it was just a lot of different people who were like, I heard you doing this podcast. I have something to say kind of thing, you know? Well, I'm also curious here. And again, uh, I, I love the fact that we're getting to talk to you uh, for a number of reasons. But, um, you know, it, it, be it became within two weeks, the number one podcast in Mexico. So I, I, ha I have to ask you, what was the most in this journey of, you know, you say you could look at it as a life journey or at least the last three to four years, but what would you say was the most challenging part and what's been the most rewarding part so far? I think the most challenging part was really um, getting people <laughs> to understand why I wanted to tell a nautical story. People... On the other side, there was like a big sort of like awakening, I would say, about like what are the stories we want to tell about our community, right? And do we want to do a stereotypical story about criminals, right? And for me, like those are the types of questions white people never have to fucking answer, you know? They never have to be like, yo, I'm not going to tell a story about. Uh, you know, someone who defrauded Silicon Valley because it's going to make all white people think all white people are criminals or whatever, you know, like, I don't care. And to me, it was like, that was the challenging part was like, what you're telling me is that my story shouldn't be told because it like, if I told my full story, it's going to include, you know, Southeast LA, it's going to include, you know, people in my, and like friends of mine who got killed, it's going to include my cousins who've been killed or arrested. It's going to be, include so many people. And like, for me, it's like, it was important as a person who survived the vicious circle to like tell a story of someone who didn't and, and how it didn't matter what the fuck he did, no matter how famous he got or big or, you know, seemingly untouchable, like he, he couldn't escape the circle. And I think that that is one of the things 
as a survivor of that circle that I, I think about a lot. And I wanted to tell that story and explaining that to people uh, was a bit challenging. Um, and, you know, thankfully, like Futuro and Sonoro, they really understood it. And they were just like willing to like write a check and let's do it and see what happened. These are two very indie studios that are like relatively new to the podcast game. They're not, you know, NPR, they're not uh, uh, Spotify. They're Latino like led companies who didn't, who, who got it, you know? And I think as far as like what has been the, the biggest like reward has been like just people like feeling seen, even people who are not narcos or who did not listen to that music like people who did not grow up in rough neighborhoods, they were, they're like, this is an incredible story that brings dignity to someone I know, because it does, it does feel like we all have those relatives that live outside the law and, and have had tragic endings. And also just like the fact that you can tell a very nuanced story about any topic, as long as you, you have that intentionality, right? You know, you brought up we made a Spanish version. Like this is a, this is a podcast my parents have listened to. My parents have never listened to a podcast in their life, and they finally have something that they can listen to because it's in Spanish, and also because it's about a topic that they understand. You know, something that they've lived with, that they grew up with. It, and so, just to be able to like see how it expands cultures. Like I know, I know people have told me they're listening to it with their abuelas and their abuelos, and like it just from like you know teenagers have meant to have reached out to me to like older folks. It's been incredible just to see that like it's such a specific story, man. Like honestly, it's like it's 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 Chalino's story, but it's it's like my my version of Chalino's story, and for people to be like, oh, I see myself in this story of this like hood nerd um, and this like narco singer, like that's crazy. You know, that to me is very crazy that from all walks of life, it's been crazy, man. I don't, I just want to make bangers, but I don't necessarily know if people are going to think they're bangers, you know, I'm like, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to spit mad fire and, and hopefully you like it. But it, but if you don't, it's okay. Cause I, I had fun doing it. But whenever I see a reaction like this, I'm very, very humbled, you know? You now have a new show called Mexican Beverly Hills that just got picked up by CBS. And it's based on an article that you wrote in the New York Times. What is this moment for you like right now? I mean, you have a show on CBS. What I'm learning about TV is that it's really hard to get a show made. Um, and it's, it's even harder to keep it on the air. I think that, I don't know, man. I don't know why people like me. I don't know why people like the stuff I do. I, I don't, I'm not trying... I swear to God, I'm not trying to get people to like me or to like my things. I'm just trying to be very authentic. And there's a lot of people and they always ask me like, what do you do these stories for? And I do them like for me because I wish these are the stories that were on the air that, that I got to see that I had to, as a kid, you know, there weren't a lot of options for me. Um, I thought I would be dead, you know, by now. I think that the reason I thought that was because of the stuff I was seeing and because not just, not just on, uh, in my neighborhood, but also on TV, you know, and, and, it, and it goes like the news, 
it's uh, what's on radio, it's, it's everything. So like my approach has always been to go to these places that I felt like controlled the narrative for me as a kid and try and change it, you know, and do it through like the New York Times and through it at NPR and do it at, you know, in podcasting and do it on TV and film in whatever way I can and try to tell the stories that I wish I would have seen. The fact that it's resonating with people, even like in boardrooms in like Hollywood, it is it's fucking mind blowing. People um, like stories that feel universal, but are, but also are very specific and stuff that sounds new, but feels like uh, nostalgic. You know, I think that there is, you know, something to be said for the fact that like, you know, my DNA is like a Petri dish, but it's easier for me, I think, to um, walk into these rooms because of the, the color of my skin. And I think that, like, sometimes, honestly, I feel like, <laughs> I don't know if I should even say this, but I feel like people really like, get, like, that I have street cred, but I don't look threatening, you know? Eric, I totally feel you. As a black guy who sounds like this, I can't tell you how many people I've had say, oh, my God, you know, you're not a black guy. You're like a white guy in a black guy's body. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. As a kid, it was real hard, you know, and I think my dad had at some point, have like, my dad, he's actually, uh, you know, very, he looks very stereotypically Mexican. He's actually, uh, his dad was black, like, um, his dad was Afro-Latino. Um, my dad always had, he has a thick accent. He always had a chip on his shoulders about people who would assume he only spoke Spanish. Um, even though Spanish is like his, his preferred language, he would get really upset if people spoke to him in Spanish. Um, he would get racially profiled a lot. The cops would stop us all the time. They thought he was not my father, like that he was kidnapping me or like he was like the help. Um, he would get pulled over routinely, you know, and, and, and then for me, like in school, it was hard. I didn't quite fit in with any of the groups, but as I've gotten older, like, and, and my dad gave me some advice, which is like, yo, one day the way you look is actually going to benefit you. You know, I didn't know that as a kid, like I was too busy trying to survive like racial oppression to understand what it was and what privilege was and like any sort of nuance to that shit. Like it, to me, it was just like, you know, we were very poor and we lived in a really bad neighborhood and uh, I, I got beat up a lot, you know? When my dad gave me that speech, like I really kind of stuck with me as, a, as I got an older, like I, I do realize that I have a lot of privilege because of the way I look. That has afforded me the ability to do things that other people can't and walk into rooms that other people can't. But the one thing I will say is, like, I take that privilege very seriously, you know? And I walk into rooms and I leverage that shit as much as I can, you know? And when I was a kid, like, I leverage it in the way where, like, the homies let me drive the car, right? Like, put Eric in the front seat, right? Oh, here come the cops, send Eric to the front door. You know, it was very practical, right? And it worked. And it worked. Yeah, yeah. Most, 
Yeah, I mean, most of the time, you know, like, did I did I get beat? Did I catch beatdowns by the police? Yeah, yeah, lots of times. But it, it more way less, way 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 like probably more than your average white person, but way less than your average person of color. You know, I think that that gave me like a, a unique lens in in which to view the world, in which to tell stories. But it has been, you know, pretty cool. Like as as someone who is like grown now, like I, I used to drive a Grand Marquis. If anybody knows what a Grand Marquis is, Grand Marquis is like a very hood ass boat of a car and it's tinted windows. And I would get pulled over all the time, guns fucking drawn until I lowered the window of my car. And then police would be like, oh, I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry, sir. Anyone with melanin in their skin would have been fucked for sure. Yeah. Um, but like that, you know, I got to see all that. And I think now, now, now it's, it's, it's even more privileged because now like uh, people are becoming a little well-known. So like people like recognize me, you know, they give me free shit. It's really hard to, it's really, really hard for me to take free shit from, especially from my own community because I love them so much, but it's also really rude to say no especially like if you know like black and brown people they they get really offended if you turn down favors and shit so it's been like my like I, I feel even more privileged now than than I even did before um but at the same time the hard part is that the stories I want to tell aren't stories about the white experience or about being privileged you know they are stories about the other side and and what what that's like and and how identity is so complex and i think that for the longest time that's why it's been really like an uphill battle to get the stories told and but that is also why i had so many stories on lock you know like ready to just roll down the fucking hill once they let them go and and a lot of those stories are sort of coming to fruition right now. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a lot of wind, but there was a bunch of fucking airballs, like for the longest time, for the longest time. And I think right now, you know, even with like Mexican Beverly Hills at CBS, we're still not a for sure thing, right? It's mind blowing to me that there are like billionaires and millionaires reading my script and deciding whether it gets to go and deciding whether they think it's, you know, interesting that you can be black and Mexican, you can be white and Mexican, you can be like a nerd and Mexican, because that's kind of what the show's about. And, and hopefully they think that's, that's interesting. And hopefully they want to take a risk and put it on the air because there's not a great track record for a lot of these shows succeeding, at least in their mind. Um, at least what it, what it means to succeed in order to keep the show going for longer than a few episodes or a couple seasons. I think there's a chance like that, you know, this show is going to be huge that we are not attempting to do what a lot of, a lot of people want us to do, which is to tell everyone's story, which no one should have to do that. No one should have to speak like Lin-Manuel Miranda should not have to speak for all Latinos. You know, um, Eva Longoria should not have to speak for all Latinas. You know what I mean? Like, I think there are so many successful shows featuring um, Latinos um, like Pose, 
right? Pell's never had that same pressure of being a Latino show or speaking for a bunch of, you know, because it was just a very, very specific story, you know, a, and that was very successful. Um, there, you know, you look at like uh, Cobra Kai, which has a lot of Latinidad in it. A lot of, <laughs> I laugh a little though, because Cobra Kai's got the whitest gangsters. Like the white kids are fucking off. Like, I don't know what's going on, but they are like, throwing down in the streets like they're living they're homeless like they they got all these problems um but it but but you know what i'm saying though like that show is not seen as a latino show like it's just seen as a show and i and i i hope that like those are the kinds of stories we get to tell stories that are just like super universal because of the message but very specific because of the story and the lens that they're getting told through the only times I ever felt seen on TV was in black television, even blackish. Like I remember blackish, like when it came out, I was like, holy shit, that's my dad. Like the grandpa on, 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 on blackish, that's straight up my dad, just grumpy for no reason. You know, like you see things like that or, or like you see Atlanta and you're like, like you get it. Life, life on these streets is fucking surreal. So of course it's a surreal take on life, you know, like, there's there's things like there's things like that 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 only you know growing up in these communities do you kind of get you know and they're very specific stories i don't think anyone would say it's a black show it's a fucking great show but i don't think anyone's gonna say it's not a black show you know what i mean it could just be what it is and i i think that's powerful and i think that you know that that has been a great example for me and like I say that as like knowing well and full well that Latino and black are not mutually exclusive. There are a lot of black Latinos, you know, there's a lot of them in my family. Um, but I, you know, I just think in terms of the lens specifically that we're talking about, it's like, let people tell their story, you know? And again, Pose is a perfect example of that. Like it's so fucking specific and so good and so powerful. And, you know, by all means was seen as a success, right? A critical acclaim, uh, you know, the number of people who watched it, like um, even Euphoria, right? Like Euphoria has got so many diverse faces on there and no one ever talks about that shit. They're all just like, what's up with the theater budget? And what's up with these kids? Are they okay? Like, because it's just good. I love everything you said about storytelling, about why we tell stories, everything you said about the kind of stories you tell and, and, you know, just the idea of telling authentic and specific stories that, you know, people will get it because we're all human at the end of the day. My question to you is this whole journey to this point now where you, and, and I guess it's a two-part question because I really wanted to ask you what your thoughts are as a filmmaker working doing dramatic podcasts because you know i definitely hear the sound design like you're kind of like you're in a film so i kind of feel like you went for that but i want to know two two things i want to know what what your thoughts are in working in purely audio just creating what you've done and i want to know what you learned about yourself in the process of all of this podcasting is so intimate audio in just general is so intimate like you create relationships with the voices in your head in a way that you really don't with um, other mediums. I, I love that. And I also love that there's much more um, experimentation. Like people are willing to let you play a little more than they are at, 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 in other places. I do like 
to make audio that sounds like film. I like to make, you know, things that feel visual. Um, I, I don't know where that comes from necessarily, but I, I just feel like I, I just maybe because like I was just obsessed with TV and film as a kid and um, I, I love it, man. And also, you know, there's a lot of intention, right? Like 10 years ago when I was trying to get Latino stories told in Hollywood, they basically told me like, well, where's the IP, you know? And I was like, bet, I'll be right back. You know, I'm going to go create a bunch of IP. And that is kind of what I've been doing. So when I make something, I want it to feel like a film because I think it's dope, but also because I think like, yo, people are listening. People who are like, I can't imagine a Latino movie or I can't imagine, you know, and they're like, oh shit, this is one in my head right now, you know? And so I think that that is very intentional with the work um, that I do. Even when I write just essays, like I'm trying to be very visual. Um, and as far as like what I learned, like, you know, I think one of the things that I learned was like, I don't want to die, man. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's like, you start to see yourself when you start telling the story of like a guy who grew up in, in, in a rough neighborhood. Sure. The nautical capital of the world is like the roughest maybe, but it's still just a rough neighborhood. And to see him sort of like try to escape that gangster shit and do it through storytelling and then get caught up in his past. Like that thing hits me, man. That hit me hard. And, and a lot of it is like, well, what does that even mean? And why, why, like how that's connected to like the idea of like machismo and, and toxic masculinity and how dangerous that shit could be. And I feel like no one's ever really sat, maybe they did. But I don't feel like anyone really sits you down and just tells you the practical reasons why you shouldn't be the toughest guy in the room to be like, yo, you're asking to get killed. Like, you just got shot at a concert. Don't go do another concert for like a minute. Like, don't just do it a couple months later, you know, like. And and like, I'm trying I try to remember, you know, as a kid, like the lessons people try to teach you about, like, don't be don't be brave don't be, don't be tough. And I think a lot of that is connected to like, when you, when you spend so much of your life trying to survive, you grow this like toughness and and this like sort of stereotypical macho shit and being able to let it go was something that I really learned in the Chalino podcast is like, I don't want to, I don't want to be the toughest guy in the room. You know, I don't need to be as brave as Chalino or Tupac. I love them. They will live on forever in my heart and and in my mind and as artists. But I'm like, man, they could have lived. They could have had kids. They could have had, you know, I mean, Chalino had kids, but I mean, he could have had grandkids. Tupac could have had kids. Tupac could have been like a politician. You know, who knows what these people would be. And like, I think that's something that I really kind of um, came to terms with. You know, I don't want to suffer that fate, man. And and there was a time when it was like, you grow up with this idea of like, cuando te toca, te toca. Like, when it's your time, it's your time. Yeah, but that doesn't mean you got to go swimming with sharks. You know what I mean? Like, if someone dares me to swim with sharks, I'm going to say no. And like, I feel like in the past, I would have been like, 
I guess, because otherwise I'm a pussy, right? Like, and those are the kinds of things like I've I've learned a lot to let go during this whole process, you know. And it was like, in many ways, like a coming of age for me to just be able to let go of a lot of the, the tough like the the little the the machismo, the toxic masculinity that that is really connected with, you know basically with violence like i don't think i i don't think i ever put that together like that violence as a whole is a result of like you know it is cyclical and it is systematic but there is a lot of like just men being men you know that's it for this episode of Brown and Black. We'd like to thank Eric Galindo for stopping by. And if you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. This episode was edited by Joshua Toronto. You can follow our comments and opinions on at Brown Black Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you on the next episode of Brown and Black. Are you ready to turn your best ideas into a thriving online business? Introducing Shopify, your no-excuses business partner. You might not realize, but our podcast, More Than Mammies, it's a business. And we started it, of course, to talk about maternity, not to become an e-commerce expert. So yeah, we needed some help selling our merch and getting our store up and running. Another sale. Shopify is a commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. No matter if you are a garage entrepreneur or a big business, Shopify is the only tool you need to start and grow your business without the struggle. With Shopify single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere, giving you the insights you need wherever you are. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash sonoro or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash sonoro to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash sonoro.